Well, let's uh, let's gather back, find a seat. If you um, don't have a Bible and would like to read along with what we're going to read, there are some on the chairs there. And if you uh, if you don't have one at home either, or if you need one, feel free to take these uh, one of these and um, and use it. We're glad for you to take it. We're uh, we're going to start through um, a new series here today. So we're in First John, the beginning of First uh, John, which is uh, toward the end of your Bible. Uh, some of the last books before you get to the book of Revelation, or First, Second, and Third John, Jude, and then Revelation. Before we start, I want to introduce this uh, this man who is the Apostle John. You know, the Apostle John was. One of Jesus' twelve disciples, of course, later became appointed as apostles or ambassadors for the gospel to declare what they had seen and and heard, and that's a part of the testimony that he gives to open this letter. But John, of all the disciples, the apostles, the writers in Scripture, John is, is perhaps the most personable of all of them. John, when he writes his gospel account, identifies himself in these words. He says, uh, when referring to himself, the one whom Jesus loved. And that, that sounds or may sound at first like a boast, like Jesus loved me more than he did other people. And in fact, John was one of the uh, two or three of, of the closest to Jesus. You know, Peter and John and James are in those three, but Peter and John seem to interact with Jesus most, or at least their interactions are recorded the most. And when John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, it's in one sense a boast, and in another sense the most humble thing he could say. Because John wasn't saying that Jesus loved me more than he loved you or others around him. John John was identifying himself entirely based on Jesus' love for him. That, that was his identity, his sense of purpose and, and of love. It wasn't just that Jesus had forgiven him, which Jesus did, because John, in that closeness, was one of the ones who was arguing with another saying, uh, make me first in your kingdom, Jesus, when you go to your kingdom. John, like Peter, had received Jesus' forgiveness. Peter, of course, saying, everybody else may fall away, Jesus, but I won't. Of course, Peter is the one who denies Jesus three times in public. And yet, both with John and Peter and meant to be communicated to each of us is this truth that Jesus' love heals and forgives them for these very human failings. And John identifies himself entirely with this truth. I am who I am only because Jesus has loved me. I am the one whom Jesus has loved Those themes carry on in this letter that John writes, probably to Christians who are living throughout the region of what's today Turkey, 
but in those days was part of the Roman Empire and part of the area that the, the truth of the gospel had gone to most powerfully. John lived in Jerusalem for a long time, but before Jerusalem fell, was conquered, destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, John moved to the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was something like modern New York in our context. It wasn't the capital of Rome. Of course, Rome was the capital of Rome. But Ephesus was this important port city that was booming economically and had all kinds of little satellites around it that just sort of uh, lived off of the economy of Ephesus and traded through Ephesus. So Paul, of course, writes his letter to the Ephesians to this church in Ephesus. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. Others spent time in Ephesus, and it became a hub of teaching for this young, growing church, the church that consisted of both Jew and Gentile, who had come to believe that Jesus was the promised Savior, the Christ. Now, this was a difficult truth for many people, and in fact, this is where John begins his letter. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, was revealed, made plainly seen. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now this is God's Word which was written out of love for us by the Apostle John. We pray with me? Our Father, these truths about your Son, Jesus Christ, are wonderful, perhaps too wonderful even for us to grasp, and yet you have revealed them to us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, that is, profitable to us because of your love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a further word about the Apostle John. The Apostle John lived to an old age. He was also the Apostle that Jesus entrusted his mother, Mary, uh, into his care. He was, he was just this fatherly kind of figure. And perhaps by the time he's writing this letter, he is an old man. It's not entirely clear, but an old man who has pared down things to the essentials, who is, 
at a point past seeing things all in the amber-colored glasses. He, he sees reality, and he's not afraid to address it. This apostle is also the one who is said to, even when he was too old, to walk in and teach the assembly in Ephesus, would be carried in by other brothers. And he would say simply this, Dear children, love one another. And he would do it over and over to the point where some people said, why, why do you just keep doing this? He said, well, because if you do this, then you've captured the essence of what it is to be a Christian. Dear children, love one another. This letter of First John is actually a letter that is over and over commending the people who call themselves Christians to love one another. In fact, he uses this amazingly stark language at a few points. It says, if you are not loving one another, you are probably not actually a Christian. The plot of this letter actually takes many twists and turns, and it's not the format of a letter that many of us like because it's circular rather than linear. Linear letters tend to begin at one point and end at another, and they follow a very logical kind of path. Now, a lot of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul's letters, follow this linear flow. And in fact, John uh, can follow this sort of linear flow. He presents that type of linear flow when he writes his, uh, uh, his gospel account. And also, to a large degree, when he's writing uh, about the revelation that he saw that God had given him. But here John writes in a circular manner. In fact, John ends in the place where he begins. But as he goes there, he takes you over and over through the same themes of what it means to be loved by God and to love God in return and to love one another. But it's interesting in this letter that follows these circular patterns of, of following the importance of loving one another that John starts and ends his letter with an explanation of who Jesus is. We've seen him. We've testified to it. We've even touched him. The word touched there is this word that almost means not just sort of a light touch. It means we've grabbed onto him. We've held him. We've, we can testify that this was actually a living human being. Jesus is the beginning and also the end. Flip back with me to chapter 5, verse 20. Hear how John ends his letter. The last sentence of verse 20. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life, echoing his beginning. He is the word of life, the end of verse 1. The life was made manifest. This word, by the way, was confusing to me for a long time. It simply means to be revealed without mistake. 
you see it and there's no mistaking it. They testify to it, right? We've heard it. We've seen it. We've touched it. What other things can we testify to it? This word, life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify and proclaim to you not just the life, but the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. In other words, John begins and ends with the most important thing. You will not be able to love one another if you don't truly know Christ and his love. Because without Christ, life is truncated. Life is terminal. Life begins and ends. And in fact, we looked at this last week and the weeks before when we were looking at a few psalms that life was brought to an end. Death came because sin entered the world. Life is cut short because sin has entered the world. But life is extended because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection secured resurrection for each of us physically, the Bible tells us. 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus raised from the dead, all of us will be raised from the dead. By the way, this is true not only for Christians, but for all people. All people will be raised from the dead. Jesus has assured this in his resurrection and will live forever. Jesus has brought eternal life for all people. Now the important question, the important question for us is whether our fellowship, whether that eternal life is with the Father and with the Son and with the community of all who have believed in Him. And the Apostle John says this, we're sharing with you the testimony that Jesus is this hope of eternal life more than that the hope of fellowship and love with God the Father so that our joy might be complete and how is his joy complete and that is that you would all believe that Jesus is the Christ and in testing whether you believe that or not you would be found to have truly believed that because of your love for one another. Because everyone who has known this love of Jesus, who came in the flesh, can then turn and love one another. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was reading various things and listening to other sermons on this. And Tim Keller, the pastor in New York, well-known biblical pastor and biblical scholar and, and pastor, comments about this joy and what it means that somebody's joy can be made complete. What what do you think? I mean, how can a person's joy be made complete? A lot of people who study the Bible say, well, he's overstating his point here because our joy cannot be fully complete until we're with God in heaven. So he's really looking forward to that time. But Keller, like a few others, say this really betrays the, the fairly plain and simple reading that we can take with us. 
See, John is looking for a joy that he is, can experience in its fullness, in its completeness, completeness at present. John is looking for a joy that is a present reality, and that is a joy that is found in these two things. One is that John finds his fulfillment in knowing that he's the one who's loved by Christ. And the second one is that John loves other people enough that he would lay down his own life, give up his own freedom so that others, both his friends and even his enemies, would know this love from Christ as well. That he would pour out his life for others in this love. I want to look briefly at these two things here. And the first one is, what does it mean to know Jesus Christ in his fullness? And this is a very important question. Sometimes we set this question aside because we think, well, it's kind of been answered and it's not that important of a question. The more important question for some of us is, well, are we saved by faith or works? Or another question for us is, what does Jesus say about certain hot-button issues in our culture today? But I want to say that these questions were questions that were present in the ancient world for these first four, five hundred years of development. Addressed in different church councils when they met. But always these questions were the secondary or even tertiary questions being debated in the time. You know what the primary question that was debated in these early church councils was? It was, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? We have heard that he was the Christ, and in fact, the testimony of many and of the word of God says he was the Christ, but what does that mean? And they searched the scriptures to ask the question, well, did he just appear to be a human being? Was it really just God who sort of was a ghost-like human being? He looked real enough, but he never really became human. I mean, how could God become human? And they went back to the apostles' writing, in particular to First John here and other passages, and they said, no, John says, we've touched him with our hands. Jesus was really a human being. They asked, well, surely then if he was a human being, he gave up some of his godliness. They go to other parts of the scriptures and they find, no, Jesus still claimed to be God. When he said to the crippled man who he raised up and made able to walk, He said, your sins are forgiven. People around him, the Pharisees said, wait a minute, only God can forgive sins like that. And Jesus didn't argue with them. Other places, Jesus claimed to be fully God. They came to this position that Jesus was both fully God and truly human. They came with other questions. They said, did Jesus did Jesus hold on a second 
I've forgotten my first century heresies. I had to be examined about these when I was ordained, by the way. I knew them then. They've fallen by the wayside now. The second, the second thing, and still is a question that's asked today, is a question, was there a time when Jesus was not? Because the Bible says, well, the Father and the Son, in fact, our passage today said, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. They asked the question, well, was there a time when Jesus didn't exist? Does this terminology mean that Jesus was born from God? As if you or I would be born from a father and mother. And the question came back, the answer came back, and they answered no. While this picture, this illustration is given of the father and the son, in fact, there was never a time when the son did not exist. There was an ancient heresy called Arianism. Arianism said their main theme was there was a time when he was not. Now it gets tricky because they're not saying that Jesus didn't exist before the incarnation. Everybody agreed with that. At least most of the Christians did. But they were more nuanced. They said if you go way back before even the creation of the world and the heavens and the earth, there was a time when Jesus was not. And God the Father made God the Son. And you think this is, this is meaningless. Why are you even talking about this today? Well, because if you go down the street here to the Jehovah's Witness Hall, that is exactly what they teach today. That Jesus was less than fully God and actually there was a time when He was not. And in fact, this is why the Jehovah's Witnesses have consistently been called a modern-day heresy, because they have not rightly understood who this person of Jesus Christ was. And listen, if we make up who Jesus is based on what we think he should have been or what we think uh, a good person would be, then we're guilty of what John warns his audience about in this last verse of his book when he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a sentence that sort of jumps out. He hasn't been mentioning idolatry through the whole letter. All of a sudden he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I think it's very poignant and very clear that John has been talking about worshiping the right thing through the whole letter. You see, if you set your worship on something that is not worthy of the worship, it can never bear the weight and it collapses on top of you. We need to worship the right thing and John is saying, worship Jesus. Because Jesus has been with the Father and with the Holy Spirit from before time and for eternity. He hints at that when he says, The life was made manifest in verse 2, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. It's an eternal life for Jesus that doesn't just extend for eternity like human beings, but goes back for eternity 
And that is only true of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm kind of hinting at this whole thing because as John cycles back through this, we'll go through it more and more through this reading of 1 John. But it's essential that as Christians, we worship Christ and who He's presented as being. And that is eternal. Eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And that is God Himself who took on human flesh and somehow kept these two natures, God and human being, in one person. And this is beautiful. That Jesus continues to live in this one person as God and human being now and forevermore. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was saying, I am not above being a human forevermore. God the Son is still human and forevermore will be. And in that, God has given us fellowship with him even a closer fellowship than we could have had with him than when he made us in his own image. Now, with that established about who Jesus is, I want to turn now to the subject of our joy and the type of joy that we can experience now. I mentioned earlier that Keller talks about this joy. Tim Keller talks about this joy And he gives this amazing illustration of this type of joy that the Christian can have. He says this is a present reality joy that even in the midst of storms and suffering we can experience. And we need to understand that this type of joy does not mean that when difficulties come, when somebody who we're close to dies, we just say, well, it's the will of God, praise be to God. You know people like that. Maybe you've tried that at some point in your life. This is the will of God. Praise be to God. When Jesus' good friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Because that death was an intrusion on what humanity was made to experience. When we experience suffering and sorrows, and when death and suffering comes near to us, there is a place for mourning because that is not the way God made us to be. God made us to live forever. But that life, that's eternal life, has actually come nearer to us than just something that we experience when we die. We can experience that in its fullness now. And if we have known the love of God, then that exists in this picture like a subterranean river. Keller paints this picture. He says, well, before he moved to New York, he lived in Philadelphia, and he bought a house that was sort of on the side of a a mountain, a ridge. And even when it was dry in the summertime, his neighborhood would stay green and a little bit moist. He said that truth was made even more... uh, more familiar to him because when it rained hard his basement would flood and he would spend four hours 
trying to bail the basement. He says, well, I should have asked the neighbors about this before we moved in, but gradually they came to understand that their house and their neighborhood actually existed above a subterranean river. And when the river, the rains would come, the river would rise and flood their basement. And he says, the type of joy that has been promised to the Christian is like this subterranean river. That even when things seem dry around us, Christ is still bringing life into and joy into our life. And when the flood comes, it's made even more real. The illustration, like all illustrations, breaks down in the pain and suffering of having to bail out the basement. But the illustration paints the picture of this type of joy that John and that God want us as Christians to experience in this life. Because it's a joy that comes from knowing that this life isn't the end of the story. Right? This life is part of the story. And in fact, we can understand some of this joy when we understand the fellowship that we have with one another. And how is fellowship experienced in its fullness? Well, fellowship is experienced more fully when we are actively forgiving one another of our shortcomings. When we're not holding grudges against one another. When we're breaking these cycles of revenge by forgiving another person and then living and basking in the light of that forgiveness. When we're doing that for one another, we're experiencing more fully the love and forgiveness that God has given to us in what Christ has done for us. That God himself came and laid down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Some people might lay down their life for a righteous person, but Christ laid down his life for us while we were still sinners. And we've been called to lay down our lives for one another, not just when we're acting rightly, but when others are sinning against us. And this is a security that gives us a joy and a hope that is actually far greater than any other religion and system can offer. See, the religions of the world say this, live a good life, love the people you're close to, and when all is said and done, hopefully your good outweighs your bad. But the gospel says this, you've been loved already and nothing you can do secures your eternal life. Only God can secure your eternal life. The systems of the world say, take revenge on other people who have done you wrong. This is what Islam says, an eye for an eye. The gospel says justice does demand that retribution be given, that the debt be paid. God is just, but God paid the debt for you in dying on your behalf. 
Now you can pay the debt of others. Apostle Paul makes the curious statement that he actually does the remaining work that Christ has left for him to do. In what? In loving others and paying it forward for their behalf. In proclaiming, as John does, this gospel to others and giving up his own rights and privileges for the sake of others. This is what true love does. And it's what life is and has been offered in this person, this human being, God made human, who we know as Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for calling us your children and for giving and entrusting to us the message of salvation that you have won through your Son, the Eternal One, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we read through this letter, would you show us the beauty of this love that you have shown us and help us to love one another because you have first loved us. Father, we confess that we have trouble loving. And so we lean on you because we know that you are love. That you are light. And in you there is no darkness at all. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, you have shown us.